We're going to read from Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14 to 9, verse 12. You can open up in your Bibles, or it is in your bulletin as well. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, the wicked, wicked men who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate avails him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always, an, always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, where, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or to the battle or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon him. This is God's word. Thank you, uh, Angela. And for those of you who are guests with us this morning, um, that probably sounded really depressing, right? You're like, man, what a depressing church this is. But... uh, yeah, what we read is depressing, but hopefully it won't stay depressing. Um, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes together uh, and kind of trying to understand what the teacher in Ecclesiastes has to say 
about some very difficult things in life. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? And, and we're trying to unpack the different ways that the teacher is trying to answer that question. He, he tries looking for meaning in his work. He tries looking for meaning in pleasure. He tries working, looking for meaning in money, and he's discovering that none of these are, are working very well. Uh, and then uh, he starts turning to deal with some issues uh, that, that bother him a great deal, and that's what we're looking at this morning. Um, one of the ways you can understand this, this word meaningless in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is as lacking understanding or, or lacking uh, an explanation. Um, the word itself probably should be translated vapor or fog or something like that because the teacher is trying to get across the idea that life, it's not just that it's meaningless. In other words, there's no purpose to it and depressing and nihilistic and that kind of thing. It's not so much that as he's saying, it's incredibly difficult to understand. So it's foggy. It's, it's, it's like a vapor. It's like wind. When you try to grab it, you, you, you can't because you think you've got it. You think you've got a grasp on it. You think you've got an understanding of it. And then poof, it's gone again. And it doesn't make sense. And, and it's very, very frustrating. And that's what we've been kind of working through together for the last number of weeks. Just a reminder to you, um, uh, we try to take questions if there's time, and so uh, you can keep an eye on uh, the bulletin for my phone number there, and if you have any questions that you want to ask, you can write them down and text me those questions during or at the end of the message, and we'll perhaps get to them. And there is a, a little outline on the back of the bulletin that hopefully works as a roadmap for us as we try to deal with the issues that, that come up in our text this morning. So what we're looking at is the issue of injustice. The teacher is, he is putting his finger on one of the big problems with life, and that is life is unfair. And we all know that. We all feel that. We all understand that. But the problem is, is, is we don't understand why it is like that. Why is life so unfair? And is there a way to, to kind of minimize the unfairness and maybe get around it? You know, there's injustices that happen on various levels to various degrees in various places around the world and to various people, but maybe there's a way for us to minimize the injustice that we suffer from by living a certain way. Is that possible? And a lot of people do live that way, you know, a lot of people hope that, that, that they can avoid injustice and suffering and all that negative stuff if they, if they live a certain way. But what the teacher is going to show us is that injustice is a big, big problem, and he's going to help us think thoughtfully through injustice. He's going he's to show us the inevitability of injustice, and, and then he's going to show us that God cannot be manipulated, that justice may seem unachievable, but that there is a reason for us not to despair. That's sort of the, 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 the progression, the logical progression that we're going to go through. But let me warn you, as we listen to the teacher explaining all this stuff, things are going to get worse before they get better. So I'm just telling you that now so that, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever from now, when you're still like, oh, man, life sucks. That's what's got to happen in order for you to, to be lifted up again as well. 
all right? It's like doing a renovation project on your house, right? You, you look at it and you go, yeah, it looks kind of lousy, so I'm going to reno, reno, and the first thing you do is you demo, demo the thing and you make it look worse before you make it look better. That's what we got to do here too. So let's go to work and let's uh, think through this question of injustice as the teacher outlines it for us. The first thing that he hits us with is the fact that injustice is completely and utterly inevitable. If you look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 9, he says this, he goes, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happens to them all. And he's talking about what you and I would call like random injustice, senseless injustice, unpredictable kind of injustice. You know, stuff happens. That's what he's talking about. You go to a concert and all of a sudden there's a shooter in the 34th floor of one of the buildings overlooking the concert and he just starts trying to pick people off. And you go, what the heck is going on? Or a plane takes off from the airport and it's flying along and all of a sudden it disappears off radar and 250 people or 300 people are gone and never to be seen again, right? Or perhaps uh, someone is going shopping on uh, Boxing Day and a gang war breaks out in the area where they've been shopping and they get hit by a stray bullet and they're dead. There's just no rhyme or reason to it. It just, boom, it just happens. Tragedy strikes. I I met a guy recently, came to visit me at the church office, real nice guy, and uh, uh, Megan has he was trying to qualify for the 2012 London Olympics in quali- in in, uh, in gymnastics, and he was in Japan for the 2011 World Championships because that's where you would qualify for the Olympics. And he is warm. He's about to do the vault. Okay, he's going to do the vault, and he does what he's done hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of times. He warms up for the vault. He goes to the vault. He runs on. He does his flip. He flipped a little bit too high. He landed, and he blew out his knee. Like two minutes before he was going to compete to qualify for the 2012 Olympics. Out, gone, over everything that he'd been working for in his life, just. Poof. What is up with that? It seems so utterly unfair, right? I, I was pastoring a man who, in his late 50s, I think he was, in his late 50s, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And as I sat with him in his hospital bed as he was nearing death, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, I thought I could avoid this. I never drank, I never smoked, I ate right, and here I am dying from pancreatic cancer. Look, when the, when the author says the race is not to the swift, what he's saying is, is, you know, fast people are supposed to win the race because they do everything right. They train right, they work hard, they eat right, etc., but in the end, they don't necessarily win. And the strong don't necessarily win in battle, and, and the wise aren't necessarily the, the wealthy or the, or the ones who are well provided for. He says, life is a crapshoot. I'll give you one more. When I was, uh, 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 I used to go to mission services occasionally with a group of men who uh, care, you know, hung out with guys who were in recovery, just played cards and stuff like that, just 
hanging out with him. And I was talking to this one guy who was there in, the, in mission services. So he's, he's living there. He's, he's going to treatment. He's trying to get his life back on track. And I said, so what's your story, man? He says, yeah. He said, uh, you know, I had a wife and I had three kids. I had a good life. Uh, and then I hurt my back at work. And so I went to the doctor and I had back pain. And doctor, he gave me Oxycontin. He said, here, you know, this is a prescription for the pain. He says, I started taking it and I got, I got hooked on it. And he said, six years later, I lost my wife, I lost my house, I lost my kids, I was living on the street. Like just, blah. I know I'm supposed to use words to communicate things, but I got no words for that. It's just like, wow. (laughs) The point is this. You're not in control. What does he say? What does the teacher say? He says, time and chance happens to them all. And he goes on. In verse 12, he says, a fish, as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. He's picturing a fish, you know, just it's swimming along, doing its fishy thing, being a fish, and all of a sudden, whoosh, it's caught up in the net. It's like finding Nemo, right? That's basically what happens. Fish is caught up in the net. It didn't deserve this. It didn't do anything to, it wasn't in the wrong neighborhood, okay? It was just in its habitat, and this happened to it. Or, or a bird is, is just hopping along, looking for bugs or worms or whatever a bird does, and whoosh, it gets snared. And he says the reason is, in verse 12, he says, because men are trapped. This happens to human beings as well, because we are trapped, he says, by evil times. He says, look, this is normal, We live in evil times. The world is messed up. There is a corruption to it. There is a a brokenness to it. There is a twistedness to it. And we should actually not be so surprised that this happens. You know, when when we have a tragedy befall us, when an injustice befalls us, we, we are utterly shocked and we say, how in the world could this happen to us? He's not shocked by it. He says, look, you're living in evil times. Things don't work necessarily the way they're supposed to. That's his point. And that's just a random injustice. Injustice is inevitable not just because it's random, but also because of corruption. In verse 14 of chapter 8, so that's at the beginning of the passage, he says this, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. You know the old saying, right? Nice guys finish last. You're working hard, trying to do the right thing, maybe, you know, get the right education, lead a clean clean life, that kind of thing, and try to stay away from, from, uh, you know, uh, immoral living or something like that, and and things don't work out for you. And here's this person who who, uh, smokes and drinks and eats badly and never exercises and they live till they're 82 and they die of a heart attack in their sleep and they never seem to have a care in the world. Now that's, scratch that actually because that's not about corruption. That guy wasn't corrupt. <laughs> here's, here's an example of an illustration of corruption. Studies show that generally, generally, in the population, 1% of the population uh, shows psychopathic tendencies. You know what a psychopath is, right? They're very manipulative. They, they have no conscience. They are very driven people who will step on anyone to get what they want 
and they don't really care how many lives they ruin in order to get what they want, that's a psychopath. You don't want to be a psychopath, okay? Um, 1% of the population shows psychopathic tendencies. Among CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, it's like four times that. Because corruption and cutthroatness in the business world is often rewarded, right? You look at the crash of 2008, I know it's getting old now, but the, the financial crash of 2008, you had people who thought they were wisely investing their money for their retirement and that kind of stuff. They lose half or all of their portfolio overnight, and the guys who invested their money and lost their money are getting bonuses from the companies that they work for. They're getting richer off it. And that's not the end of it. You just watched the news recently. I don't know if you've, uh, you've followed the United States at all, what's happening there with uh, a man by the name of Larry Nasser. He was the team doctor for USA Gymnastics, and he molested hundreds of girls over many years as the team doctor, ruining their, ruining their lives, frankly. And it seems like Officials at the University of Michigan knew that something was happening and did nothing about it. By the way, if you're a victim of abuse, I want you to know you're safe here. You can be open. You can come talk to me. I have some counselors that I'm connected with that can sit down with you and work through that. Because it's real and it's, it's bad and it does destroy lives. There's corruption in the world. And the Bible knows this, okay? The Bible is not, don't, don't misunderstand the Bible. Because it points this out, it doesn't mean that it is, uh, it is condoning this. In fact, the Bible rails against it in several places. In, in Psalm 73, listen to these words. The psalmist crying out to God, he says this, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. And then in verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. You're a business owner who tries to uh, operate according to the law. You, you don't do cash. You, you pay your taxes and all that kind of stuff. And the, and the guy, the competitor down the street, you know is, is a little bit crooked. And you just watch their, their business flourish because we live in a messed up and unjust world. And that doesn't mean that we accept it. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 12, he actually gets a little upset with God, believe it or not. He says this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them, and they have taken fruit. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. You know, sometimes people, I want to just, this is a bit of an aside, but sometimes people, they think, you know, Christianity, it's always got such simplistic, pat answers to the issues of life, but the reality is that's not true at all. Listen to these biblical authors wrestling, the teacher, the psalmist, Jeremiah. They are wrestling with the injustice that they see in the world, and they say there is, it's not right, and, and, and they're even challenging God about it, saying, you have got to explain this to me. 
Okay, that's point one. Injustice is inevitable. We gotta exp- God, you've got to explain this to me. But listen, here's God's response. I can't be manipulated. This is point two. I can't be manipulated. In, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. No man knows whether love or hate awaits him. See, remember I said at the very beginning, people sometimes get this idea that, well, if I do the right things, if I clean up my act, if I live the right way, maybe I can avoid this inevitable justice, so-called inevitable justice. So if I go to church, right, if I love my kids and I raise them right and I'm one of those really attentive parents and, and I'm always asking them about their feelings and I'm taking them to, uh, to all their sports events or to the, all their music stuff or all their art stuff or whatever, I, if I have a lot of attention, then they will grow up and they will be very good people, well-rounded people, successful people. And if I, if I give money or if I serve or whatever, somehow I can, I can avoid these, these horrible stories that I hear other people going through. And the reason is, is because deep down in your, in your soul, what you think is, is that if you do those kinds of things, then God actually owes you a good life. If you pay the money, or if you serve in church, or if you take care of your kids, or if you're a good spouse, if you do good things, if you do the right things, well then God, He owes you a good life. And I know that Christians think this, and, and, and it hap- you know, you think this more than you think you think this. And you know how you'll know you think this? Everybody got there? Okay. Here's how you'll know you think this. When tragedy strikes, when, hard, when, when the inevitable injustices of the world hit close to home and they hit you, you get mad at God. And you say, I don't deserve this. Why did this happen to me? But look what the teacher says. He says, look, you don't know whether love or hate awaits you. You don't know whether favor or disfavor awaits you. In other words, you cannot coerce God, friends. You can't manipulate Him. You can't play God. You can't play Him. He's God, and so He calls the shots. Okay, well, that stinks. <laughs> What's the consequence of that? Well, it seems anyway, well, that, that therefore justice seems unachievable. That's the way it is. If injustice exists in the world, God cannot be manipulated. I can't do anything about avoiding the injustice that I'm experiencing. Well, then that means that justice, real justice, it's not achievable. Look at verses uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 9. He says, all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take. In the grand scheme of things, at the end of it all, whether you're good or you're bad, seems like it doesn't matter because they all end up in the same place. Death captures everyone. Death comes to everyone. And so since death swallows up everyone, it seems like whether you live a good life or whether you live a bad life, in the end, it doesn't really matter 
Whether you die a sinner or you die a saint, who cares? And of course, what we want to say in response to that is, well, wait a minute, you know, First of all, you need to understand that people who, who live evil lives, they know deep down in their soul that they're living an evil life and they live with a lot of guilt and they're not all that happy. And maybe that's true, I don't know, 30, 40, 60, maybe even 80% of the time. But the fact of the matter is, my friends, is that there are lots of wicked people who don't lose a wink of sleep at night. They're quite happy with their lives. Things are going pretty well for them. Look, most of the time what they're doing is they're justifying their wickedness, right? You think Robert Mugabe, you know who Robert Mugabe was, right? Terrible dictator of the country of? Thank you. That's what I thought it was, but I wasn't sure, so I figured I'd ask you to make sure. (laughs) Good trick, eh? Zimbabwe, right? He basically buried that country in poverty to enrich himself. And what did he call himself? The father. He called himself the father of his people. You think he went to bed at night thinking, oh, I'm such a bad, bad man? Oh, no. He laid down in his silk pajamas, in his gold-plated four-poster bed, whatever it is, and thought he was a good guy doing good stuff. And, and the, the teacher, he goes on, he says, look, the destiny, this is verse 3b, the second half of verse 3, he says, the same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward, they join the dead. There is wickedness in the hearts of human beings, there is madness in the hearts of human beings, and, he, and people say, hey, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't talk so bad about human nature. Hey, Bible, hey, preacher, hey, Christianity, don't be so negative about human nature saying that we're bad in our hearts and we're bad in our souls. But it's so interesting, like, and it kind of annoys me, I'll be honest with you. I've mentioned Jordan Peterson a few times to you. He's extremely popular in Canada right now. He is a complete secularist, uh, but he has a high respect for a lot of uh, Western intellectual thought that is rooted in Christianity. And he goes off on how human nature is depraved. In his lectures and in his books, he is constantly talking about how human beings are evil at their root, and that needs to be restrained. He just totally ripped it from Christianity. But because he, gets to, he says it, people say, oh, yes, that's a brilliant insight. When a Christian says it, people go, oh, you're so negative about human nature. That is so unfair. That's just me bellyaching. But he says at the end, not, not Jordan Peterson, the teacher, he says, at the end... They join the dead. In other words, you lead a life of wickedness and in the end, you get away with it because you die just like everyone else. And this is an important point to remember and to think about and, re- and, and, and really wrestle with. Think of Hitler. Think of the atrocities that he committed. Think of the life he led. The teacher is bang on about him. There was wicked, his heart was full of evil and there was madness in his heart while he lived. But then he joined the dead. He gets away with it. And he's right. You know that. That's the point. That's the point. The point is you know that guys like Hitler who can just die after the things that they commit and the things that they do, they can just die without recompense, without 
without justice being done, that is a grievous evil. Right and wrong should matter. The teacher is angry about it, and we should be angry about it. And we are angry about it, even as not just Christians, but human beings are angry about it, because there is a sense of justice deep in our souls. You know, one of the most popular movies right now is a movie that was, uh, it was uh, nominated for an Oscar. It's called Three, let me make sure I get this right, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Anybody heard of that movie? It's about a woman whose daughter was brutally raped and killed outside a little town called Ebbing, Missouri. And she, she watched the police do nothing in terms of, of seeking justice. And she got so angry that she paid to have three massive billboards put up on the highway outside of town questioning the police. Because we demand justice. Rightfully, we want justice. We long for justice, but it's everywhere, and it feels like we'll never get it. You see it in the political corruption stories, the Me Too movement. It's, I could go on and on and on and on and on, and we could despair. I hope you're bordering on despair, because that's the idea. Should we despair? This is the last point. There's a reason not to despair. You don't need to despair as you face the injustices that you've experienced personally and the the injustices that you see in the world around you. The teacher gives us a clue to how we do not despair, but the gospel gives us the response, gives us the real response to injustice, the full-bodied response to injustice that we need. So this is four points under point four, but I'll go very quickly. Here's the clue. In verses 16 and 17, the teacher says this, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. The teacher is saying, look, You and I, we are small, we are finite. God is big and infinite. We live under the sun. We we don't see things from his perspective, so we don't understand it. We don't understand the injustice that's around us. But his argument is basically this. Just because you don't understand the injustice that's, that's in front of your face and the here and now on the horizontal plane does not mean that there isn't something happening on a higher plane that you don't get because you're not God. Have you ever been in one of those corn mazes? You ever done one of those before? You know, you're in this corn maze and you're, you're walking around and boom, dead end. And you turn around, you try another way, boom, dead end. You don't know where you're going. So what do you do? Sometimes what these corn mazes have is they have these little towers that you can go up and you can stand up there and then you can see sort of how the corn maze works and then you go back down and you try to follow it and you get your way out. You and I, we live in the corn maze from day to day. But God, he exists above the corn maze and and it all makes sense to him. You and I don't understand that. That doesn't mean that there can't be something going on that is bigger than you understand. I use this illustration all the time and so some of you may be very, very familiar with it. Um, But I think it's so helpful. It's so helpful for me. Imagine a bear that's in Yellowstone National Park, okay? And this bear accidentally gets its foot caught in one of these, these spring traps, 
and the trap closes on the bear and the bear goes, ah, and it's in all terrible pain. Doesn't understand what's going on. This is an injustice. This is unfair. I was just going to eat blueberries. What's wrong with that? And along comes uh, a ranger. And a ranger sees that the bear is caught in the trap. And the ranger wants to help the bear. But in order to help the bear, it's got to make the bear's life a little bit worse. So it goes over to its truck and it pulls out its gun. And it pulls out its, its, uh, its, it's got one of those tranquilizer darts in it. And he walks up to the bear. And the bear goes, oh, man, I'm about to get shot. And he goes, boom. And he hits it. And the bear gets, gets it in the rumper or in the shoulder or whatever. Ah, all kinds of pain. And the bear's like raging. What are you doing this to me? And he, oh, now it starts to get all kind of sleepy. And it kind of flops over. And then it sees that, that the, the ranger is approaching. And, he, and he's like, oh, man, now it's coming to get me. Now I'm really freaking out. And, and the ranger comes up. And, he, and because it's one of those spring-loaded traps, he has to actually tighten the, the trap in order to release the spring. And so he pushes those, those teeth marks, those teeth into the, the bear's leg. And the bear goes, ah, now I'm in more pain. What are you doing to me? But he has to do that in order to release it. Now, why cannot the bear, when the bear doesn't understand what's happening to it, the, the suffering that it's going through and the injustices that it's experiencing, it doesn't get it. Why? Because it can't understand. Because it's a much lower order of being. One of my kids, I won't tell you which one, because just in case they don't like it. Um, but one of my kids, it's actually a story, I'm proud of my child, but one of my kids once... Uh, was talking to my wife. My wife said, how'd you sleep last night? Oh, terrible. Why? Oh, because the cats were chasing these, these mice, and I had to get them out of there. My, my wife was like, what? Yeah, I had to get them out of there. So what'd you do? Oh, I just picked up the mice, and I put them outside. I'm like, that's very impressive for a little kid. Like, you weren't freaking out over mice being in, in, in the house. But I picture this. I picture my child cornering the mouse, and the mouse is like cowering in fear. It's going to get trounced. It's going to get chomped on. It's going to get stepped on. It doesn't know what's going to happen. It thinks it's dead. And then my child picks up that, that mouse and cradles it and takes it outside and puts it outside out of the uh, clutches of the cat that was terrorizing it. And so in the moment, as it's experiencing this suffering and this fear and this injustice, it's actually being freed, but it can't understand, see? And that's us. You may not like that, but the reality is, if God is who he says he is, he is vastly superior as a being than you are. And his knowledge and his understanding and his ways are so beyond your knowledge and understanding and ways that there are things that you will never get. And that's just how it is. And that's as far as the teacher takes us. And maybe it's helpful a bit, but it's not enough, okay? Because you and I, look, we're not computers, right? Computers just compute. A, B, C equals D. Spits it out. Fine. Very, very logical. But you and I, were not like that. We need more than that. It's, you know, you don't tell a person who has just been abused, well, you're like a bear or a mouse or a bird or whatever, and God is so great, and you don't understand. You can't, you can't say that. It may be a comfort, but it's a cold comfort in the midst of your injustice and your suffering. You need more. Well, what do you need? You need the gospel. You need to look at the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross of Jesus Christ is maybe not the answer to injustice, but it's God's response to injustice. It's God's response to injustice. How? You ever wondered what it must have been like 
to be a disciple of Jesus for those three years, see all the things he did. He walked on water. He, he fed thousands of people with nothing. He touched people and they were healed instantly. He called a man's name and said, get out of the grave, and the guy walked out alive. And you're thinking to yourself, he's it. Like, this guy's unstoppable. This guy can raise the dead. This guy can heal the sick. This guy can do whatever he wants. He can walk on water. And I'm with him. And he has promised that he is going to overthrow wicked, the wicked oppressors. And I look at Rome and I look at my oppressors and I, I think he's going to bring the justice. This is finally it. All that, all that I've been waiting for is, is locked up in this guy. And on that first Good Friday, so many centuries ago, you saw him get arrested. You saw him get tried by a kangaroo court and ultimately saw him got hung up. He got hung up on this cross. And he was killed. And he died right before your eyes and the dream went poof. The ultimate victim of injustice. What, what must that have been like? You must have, you must have just had your heart totally broken and thought to yourself, the corruption, it, it, it's too strong. If he can't stop it, nothing can stop it. And, and you went home probably totally dejected, but all the while, all the while, what you were watching was God's ultimate defeat of injustice. Because you see, we're the cause of the injustices in the world. But God punished him in our place for it. Oh, God could have wiped out all the injustice without killing Jesus. He could have, but then he would have had to wipe out you and me. And you might be thinking here, well, wait a minute. I'm not the, I'm not the cause of what's wrong with this world. I'm not the cause of the injustices. Oh, no. Hey, mom, hey, dad. You ever grounded your kid just because you were mad at him? Like not for real just reasons, just because you were sick of their lip or frustrated with their laziness or whatever. You just thought, here's a chance for me to smack you, and you did. Hey, kids, you ever just needle you ever just needle your brother or your sister just to get under their skin, just to get them to blow up because then mom will ground them? You ever do that kind of thing? And you think, oh, that's just small stuff. That's just small stuff. But let me tell you a story. Adolf Eichmann was one of the most heinous men probably in all of history. He was one of the architects of the Nazi final solution where they gassed millions of Jews in those gas chambers so many uh, years ago, decades ago. And he was on trial in De Hague. But they needed eyewitnesses to say that he actually was a participant in this. And so they looked high and low to find eyewitnesses, and of course those were very, very hard to find. But they did find someone. They found a man by the name of Yehil Deneur. And Yehil Deneur was going to testify against Adolf Eichmann. And, and when he walked into that courtroom and he saw Adolf Eichmann, he looked at him and his face became ashen. 
and he actually collapsed. He literally collapsed on the floor in the fetal position and began sobbing uncontrollably. And a, a while later, he was being interviewed by Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes. And, and Mike Wallace asked him about that moment when he saw Adolf Eichmann. And he says, you know, you must have been overcome with rage. Or you must have been just so, uh, so uh, torn apart by the picture of this evil monster. And, and it just was so overwhelming to you, right? That's probably what it was. And he said, no. He said, when I saw Adolf Eichmann, I became afraid about myself. Because I saw that I am capable to do this. Because he was exactly, I was exactly like he. In other words, he had pictured this horrible, horrible monster in his mind. But when he actually saw Adolf Eichmann face to face, what he saw was just a man. Just a man. Not even a very tall man. Not a very robust man. Kind of a pudgy nerdy looking guy and he was faced with the fact the horror of evil is not not something out there but it's something in here and the gospel is that God could wipe us out but he doesn't instead he beat injustice from the inside nobody could have seen that coming Two more very quickly. The cross means that injustice cannot mean that God doesn't love you and God has abandoned you. Remember some of us, we think when bad things happen to us, we think, God, what's your problem? I'm a good guy. Why are you doing this to me? Are you punishing me? Have you left me? Are you ignoring me? When you look at the cross, you know that that cannot, cannot, cannot ever be the case because the cross is all about God abandoning his son so he would never abandon you, ever. bought you with the blood of his son Jesus Christ which is more valuable than all the riches in the world Jesus lived a perfect life perfectly obedient and he suffered infinitely more than you ever could he knows the injustice that you're facing and then lastly the cross means that there is a promise of injustice at the end because the cross, you can never remember the cross without remembering the resurrection, okay, friends? You can't remember that wood, that wooden cross without remembering the empty tomb. And what the empty tomb means is that nobody, ultimately, nobody gets away with anything, that the day of reckoning comes for the horrible, uh, uh, the horrible um, uh, perpetrator of injustice who here and now seems to be getting away with it. And you want to rise up and say, we've got to stop them. We've got to do something about this. We, we've got to make them pay. You can stand back and you can do, as we said in our confession, as the Apostle Paul said, you can, can love your neighbor and love even your enemies because you know that one day God will put everything right. Fyodor Dostoevsky, one of the great Christian existentialists in history, in The Brothers Karamazov, which is a phenomenal novel, he writes this. The words are on the front of your bulletin if you want to follow along. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. 
that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, and it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what has happened. Let's pray. God Almighty, We pray that you will help us to rest in your promises, to look to the gospel as we face injustice, as we suffer injustice, and as we fight against injustice. Teach us to trust you with our whole heart and to speak against injustice wherever we find it because we know that you are a just God who will one day put everything right and in the meantime, a comforting God who grants us strength in the midst of our trials. In Jesus we pray, amen.